can we talk uh, briefly about the experience in BC? Because I think that that's where hopefully it'll hit home for listeners, that they'll be able to kind of see what British Columbia looked like during uh, the Second World War. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing about British Columbia's Second World War. There's really only one story we oh, that you know we tend to hear about the Second World War in British Columbia, and that is uh, the in the wake of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the the decision initially to uh, in in uh, intern all the residents of Japanese ancestry, whether or not they were Canadian citizens or not, in camps in the interior of BC and Alberta, and some in as far east as Ontario. They were removed because they were perceived as a threat. Um, <clears throat> and and not only that, of course, their their homes, their businesses, their 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 possessions were all seized and sold at a fraction of their value, and many of that much of that money never made its way to those to those families. And then they were banned from returning to the coast until 1949, four years after the war. Wow. And in fact, at the end of the war, there was a program to send Japanese and Japanese Canadians, people who were born in Canada, never seen Japan, to Japan to just get rid of them. And several thousand actually were shipped to Japan before the growing awareness of human rights and that this was an injustice that was being perpetrated here led to that program being halted. Um, and so that's really the the main story we know of British Columbia in the Second World War. There's there's very little else that's told. If if you look in the history, um, the broad survey histories of BC history, there are a few other things that are talked about. They talk about the growth of the economy um, in the same way that we talk about it nationally, about women coming into the economy to some extent. Uh, there's a fair bit of attention paid to the rise of organized labor which is battered in the depression years, but which really regains its strength during the war because it's labor shortage, because there's so much urgency to, to produce that they win strikes and the government often sides with them. And, and in fact, they win recognition of the right to strike and to organize and unionize. It wasn't officially legally recognized before the Second World War. So it, it's a really important era in terms of Canada's labor history and working class history. Uh, and so those those are also sort of parts of the story. There's a little bit of attention sometimes to the politics. Canada's politics in this time period is really interesting because in the Great Depression, the CCF, the Co Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, comes into being and becomes a real force in BC, there, where there's a strong working class support for socialism, social democracy, and the CCF. And, and although they didn't gain a lot of traction during the Depression, in the war years, they really start to gain a lot of traction and support. And in fact, they become... Uh, they get as much support as either the liberal or conservative parties do. And so the liberal and conservative parties actually create a coalition government, both to keep the, the, the socialists out and to retain power. And so there's a coalition government that serves through most of the Second World War from 1940 to 45 uh, and beyond. And it is actually a fairly effective government uh, during the war. But, you know, the, the, the attention tends to be just on the political figures. And there's some interesting characters like Duff Patella, who was the premier in the Depression years and and in the early part of the war years and that sort of thing. And so we tend to focus on the these characters, but it, it's more old-fashioned sort of the dead white powerful men kind of story. The story of what's happening with British Columbians in their communities, in, you know, remote regions of the country, of the, of the provinces, is, is not so much known. It's not so much talked about. So we don't know what, if the war looked or felt the same in Cranbrook, as it did in Fort St. John, as it did in Rupert, as it did in Vernon, as it did in, you know, Port Alberni, right. uh, or or in the heart of Vancouver. Um, and so 
those stories are out there, but they're hard to find. They're buried in in local popular histories that have been published at one time or another um, in, in in a few specialist studies, but there's really very little out there. And I, I've spent much of the last year on sabbatical reading as much BC history as I, you know, 20th century history as I can get my hands on. And what I'm astonished by is how there's bits and pieces here and there, but there it's it's incoherent. It's it's disconnected and it's and it's badly in need of having the story kind of stitched back together because the war, in fact, was really important in British Columbia. You know, it touched every home, every household in some way. Lots of people, of course, enlisted, but it, it's hugely important economically, whether you're working in the forestry industry, if you're in shipbuilding, fishing, uh, every part of the of the economy. And new industries are created, like the Boeing plant. You know, there's Boeing workers, women workers here in the Fraser Valley and creating air, building aircraft in the Second World War. So it, it touches everybody in a lot of ways. There's there's rationing. So what people can make for dinner at night is shaped by the government in the war. Um, and then, of course, you also get what's different in British Columbia is, is that we become part of the front of the Pacific War. When Japan enters the conflict attacking uh, the Americans at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, and all of a sudden for people on the coast, they're vulnerable. They're not, I mean, up until that point, the war was this distant thing away, a long way away in Europe. And for most British Columbians throughout the war, the war remained a distant thing. You know, if you were, if you were in the interior, the war was a long ways away. But for people living on the coast, especially more exposed parts of the coast, like Rupert, like, you know, Port Alberni, Victoria, Vancouver, People felt threatened if the United, if Japan could attack Pearl Harbor and destroy most of the American fleet. What's to say that they couldn't launch at least a nuisance raid or, you know, launch aircraft from an aircraft carrier and bombard our our ports and that sort of thing? And you know, the likelihood of that was always small. And and Canada's military leadership and political leadership in Ottawa knew that. But of course, that's easy to say from Ottawa. Right. If you're in Port Alberni and the, that nuisance raid means bombs drop in your children's school, well, that's 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 a lot more visceral. You take that much more to heart, and so the war became much more immediate, uh, much more, you know, in people's face in that latter portion, particularly along the coast. And I'm really interested to see what that looked like. And so you get the rise of things like the Pacific Coast Militia Rangers, which was a, a local defense organization, kind of informal. It was connected to the military, but it, uh, these were made up of men who usually weren't medically fit to enlist or were in essential service like forestry or the fishing industry and often lived in remote regions of the coast. So the west coast of Vancouver Island, all up and down the coastline. And they were composed of the people that lived there. And often that meant indigenous communities were living in some of these more exposed parts of the coast. And eventually, some more than 15,000 British Columbians are part of the Pacific Coast Militia Rangers, and they patrolled the coastline, kept an eye out for Japanese submarines or ships or, or aircraft or anything of that sort. Their job was to fight as guerrilla fighters if there was an invasion. And, um, you know, that, that was a very real way for people, even though they were home, to still contribute to the defense of their local communities in a very real and manifest way. Uh, then, so the war was very much on people's minds. You know, it, it brings a lot of growth to British Columbia. British Columbia is 800 and some thousand before the war. And not long after the war, we crossed the million mark. A lot of people moved to BC to partake of wartime industries. Shipbuilding grew from maybe 3,000 to like 30,000 plus people working in that industry in Vancouver and Victoria, Prince Rupert and elsewhere. So, you know, there were jobs to be had. People moved from the prairies, from the interior. You couldn't. And if, in fact, the government actually made it illegal to move to certain cities 
during the war because of the housing shortage, unless you had a wartime written need to be there. Either the military sent you there or you had a war job, war-related job to go to. You couldn't move to Victoria or Vancouver. It was illegal. Wow. That is just incomprehensible now. It, it is. We can't imagine the government controlling our lives or putting those kinds of, well, maybe we can a little bit more after COVID, actually. Having gone through, you know, stay at home <laughs> yeah, it puts, orders and that sort of thing. It puts the passports in more perspective as well. It does. It does. And, and you know, the, the, you know, the anxiety about them, in a way, when you compare it to the, the constraints of the Second World War, you know, there, there are similar things. The government is, is taking a more overt hand and trying to control things in the public interest, in the, you know, for particular reasons. And, and not everybody is on board with it. Some people resist. Some people, you know, uh, try and subvert those, those regulations. But most people, most people see the need and follow through on it. And it's much the same as we see today. But, of course, the war lasts for six years. You know, you can imagine how tired people are now of COVID and this sense of ongoing crisis and when the hell is this going to end? How about if it was six years of this, you know, and it, it got worse before it got better again kind of thing. And, the, and government controls were even more pinned down. Um, how would we be able to stand it? You know, would there, would we still be able to pull together? And, and yet British Columbians for the most part were able to, you know, and continue to contribute in all kinds of ways. That sets such a good example, but I have to ask, how did, how do you approach this? You said you were spending a year researching. What is it like for you? What is your driving force behind this, I guess? Like, do you get excited when you get a new book and you get to read about these experiences? Or is it like, this is what I got to do? How do you approach doing this type of research? I, I do, actually. And, and for me, it's exciting because I, I spent more than 25 years, you know, working the subject of Indigenous military experiences. This is a real change of field in a way for me. It's a big change of topic. I've taught BC history, introductory BC history, but it, you don't have to understand the history in the same depth to teach it as you do if you're researching in it. You really have to become deeply, intimately familiar with everything that's written. And, you know, for me, I, I it is exciting. I, I was happy to have a break from teaching as much as I love my teaching. Uh, and, and the chance to, to sit down and read, you know, when I'm teaching, I don't have time to read stuff unless I absolutely have to kind of thing. Cause you're just, you're pulled all, you know, in different directions all the time. And so having that time and the sabbatical to read, I read over a hundred books and a couple hundred articles and theses and ma masters and PhD theses and stuff and really immersed myself into that, that literature. And I start to see, it's not until you do that, you start to see the contours of the landscape of the literature and where, where the things are that we know and where some of the gaps and holes and low points are that we really don't know and you know how widely separated all these these little bits that we do know are from one another and how little they interact with each other and and that does make me excited again it helps me rediscover the joy of being a historian uh, you know that 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 initial enthusiasm that drew me to pick up history books when I was a kid. Can you, you know? can you tell us about how that came about for you? When did you start getting interested in this and what really pulled you into it? I was just a kid. I mean, eight, 10 years old. I was always fascinated by old war movies. Um, of course, they were always American. Um, but, you know, if we went to the bookstore or whatever, there'd always be the big picture books, World War One, World War Two. That's where I would go. I'd go and I'd flick through these and I'd look at the pictures and, and that sort of thing. And I... I just was fascinated by this. This is so alien to my imagination, I, I, to understanding. And, and then again, trying to figure out 
I knew Canada was involved, but I couldn't find those stories and wanting to know more. And that's really where it came down to. I read military history as a hobby before I went to university. I love to read. I read a lot of stuff, but I, I like to read history and particularly military history. And so when I went to university and had strange, weird delusions of being a dentist initially, but I sucked at science and and math was just never going to happen. And I was never going to be a dentist in reality. Uh, but I took history courses still because I loved them and that kept me sane. And and uh, it was actually, I did a year at the college in Cranbrook, which was not entirely successful, uh, although I loved the school. And I had a great history teacher there who also inspired me, uh, Donna Lomas. And uh, and then I went to UVic. My parents decided I was doing too much partying and too much hunting, and I needed to do more schooling. <laughs> so they sent me to UVic for my second year, which was wise in retrospect. Um, and and I still was trying to take sciences and math. And then I was staying out in Colwood, ways out of, out of town, and I missed the last bus out from the bars one night. I was in with friends having a nice evening. So I had to thumb a ride. And it was about a 25-minute drive. And the nice person picked me up. I have no idea who they are. Asked me what I was doing. I said I was going to university. And they asked me what I was taking and where I was going. And I was explaining how I was struggling with the science and hating the math. But it took history to stay sane. They said, why don't you just do what you like? It's one of those, bing, you know, like literally a light bulb went on over, off over my head. I thought, I could do that. What would I do with that? No clue. But all of a sudden... That was an enticing, exciting thought, you know, and so, so I started to take more history and geography and political science and and things that I was excited and interested in engaged in. My marks got way better, and I still didn't know where I was going. I started to think eventually maybe I would try law school. Uh, history degree is an excellent platform for for launching into law school, and um, and then by third and fourth year, I was so loving my history classes. I loved university. I loved the environment. I loved the intellectual exchange. I loved learning new things. And I started to think about the idea of, of becoming an academic, you know, of, of doing grad school, going to do a master's and a PhD. And, and I, I, I still held on to the idea of law school. And I, fourth year, I was going to do the LSATs and, and apply to both, but it, you know, it was expensive to apply to everything. And, and I decided eventually that you know, I was excited about the idea of doing a master's. And although I thought I would do well in law, I wasn't excited about it. And so for me, that that kind of swung me to, and I thought, I'll do the master's. If writing a 100-plus page master's thesis is excruciatingly painful and I hate it, that's only two years I've invested. I could do law school still, and, and that's fine. But I loved it. And, and so I went on to the PhD, and, and you know, I, I loved the process of graduate school all the way through. And I loved being an academic. I, I get paid to talk about history with other people who are also interested in history. And that's amazing to me. Yeah. You know, I, I love the job. I have an enormous amount of control over what I do, when I do it, and how I do it. Um, and, and that's something you don't always have in most jobs. So I've never regretted the decision, but, you know, it's a long road. It's not for everybody. It's For me, it was 12 years of school where you're not really in the job force kind of thing, although I did all right doing scholarships and I did make some money. But I, you know, I was fortunate that my parents supported me in my undergrad and my my spouse supported me in grad school and helped me get through my academic habit for, you know, the years I was doing it. And then I was able eventually to land a tenure track job was was great. But it's it's definitely it's a challenging long road to 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 go down. 
you've also written quite a few books and written articles. Can you tell us about those books, um, where people can find them and what, what they're about? Yeah. Um, in, in history, the book is still really important to us. In a lot of other disciplines, they don't really write books anymore. But for history, writing big monographs is still the major achievement of a of your academic career. And so I've been fortunate to be able to produce two major books, either as the primary or, or, or uh, contributing author, and a third where I was another contributing author. My first one was based on my PhD thesis, and it's called The Red Men's on the Warpath. And it's about the, the image of the Indian in, this, in uh, English Canada in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, that was published in 2004 by UBC Press. Uh, it's still available through their website. Um, and uh, the, the, since then, I've published lots of articles. Most of that's academic information. But uh, my second major book just came out in 2019 with Cambridge University Press. And that's the transnational look at Indigenous people uh, in the Second World War in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and Canada, and looking at it across those four nations and comparing and contrasting the, the different patterns and the similarities and trying to make sense and explain uh, you know, what we can tease out of that. And that was a crazy and vast undertaking. It took me more than a decade and a couple of different collaborators to, to put together and, and uh, you know, thousands and thousands of archival documents from each country to to work with, not to mention all the literature that was published in each country on the subject or near related subjects. It was a kind of crazy undertaking. And I was really proud to to be able to finish that off. I worked with, uh, it's actually an American scholar, but he's, he's based at uh, the Catholic University in Australia in Melbourne. And I uh, was an expert on, on Aboriginal participation in the Second World War in the United States as well. And I was stronger on Canada and New Zealand. So it worked as a good pairing. Um, and we were able to to complete that book and bring it out with one of the major international academic presses, which I'm really proud of. That's sort of my magnum opus. And that was that was sort of my final statement on Indigenous uh, participation in the wars. And I've tr started to turn the corner in terms of topics since then, although I'm still known for that. So I still be I'm drawn into that sort of thing. I, I did a, an interview for a Quebec documentary uh, company last year on Indigenous participation in the war. Um, I just did a um, actually an aftermatter paid uh, section for a graphic novel by an Indigenous author. Uh, it was Dene. Uh, from Northwest Territories, and uh, talking about because it touched on Indigenous participation in the war and the uranium mining in the region that fed into the atomic program of the Manhattan Project. So I spoke a little bit about that. Uh, for that, um, I'm going to be giving a talk uh, webinar for the, the BC Museums Association in, on November 10th, uh, along with another gentleman talking about remembrance and. And those communities that aren't always included in remembrance. And so I'll be talking about Indigenous veterans in remembrance and, and how museums might be able to engage that topic and maybe broaden their, their holdings and the way that which they present and, you know, contribute to the collective memorization, commemoration of those events in their own communities. Mm -hmm.